Uh, Gracious Father, uh, we thank you that you do promise to speak to us by your word and that your word is uh, powerful uh, and it's able to save and able to change us. And so we pray that you would change us uh, by what we read in your word this morning. We pray that you would give us a heart like your heart, a heart that seeks uh, for people to be saved and come to life through the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, well, today we come to uh, the end of uh, this series in Jonah. It's, it's been great to be with you uh, for the last four weeks. I'm, I'm a little bit sad that we're coming to the end of Jonah. I've, I've really enjoyed preaching through it and I hope that you've enjoyed working through Jonah as well. Uh, it's been challenging. Uh, I hope that you've found that. It's been challenging to me, but it's also been encouraging as we've seen the big point of this book as we've worked through it that big point that we said at the start, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah really isn't a book about a big fish. Jonah isn't even really a book about Jonah. Jonah is a book about God. It's a book about God who is the great evangelist. Uh, It's about God's heart that is merciful and compassionate and turns back from disaster. Jonah really is a strange book in a lot of ways, isn't it? Uh, We've seen that as we've worked through. It's about a prophet who doesn't want to be a prophet and, frankly, he doesn't really seem to like God very much. Uh, He's taking a message from God to a people who aren't actually God's people. Uh, He rebels and he gets swallowed by a fish and then vomited up by the same fish uh, and then obeys and preaches just a five-word sermon which is a sermon of judgment and condemnation, but actually turns out to be probably the most successful evangelistic message ever, with 120,000 people repenting. That, you know, Billy Graham, eat your heart out sort of stuff, isn't it? Lots of strange stuff happens in the book of Jonah. And to add to the strangeness, we then get chapter 4. If the book finished at the end of chapter 3, where we, uh, where we looked at last week, the vibe of Jonah would be very different, wouldn't it? It would be, Jonah preached, Nineveh repented, God showed mercy, everyone lived happily ever after. But this is not a happily ever after story. We get one more scene, and it's a scene that paints Jonah in a very ugly light. If this is Jonah's memoirs, written years later, you could imagine Jonah feeling very uncomfortable about putting this scene in. It's one of those incidents that haunts you for the rest of your life as you think back about that stupid thing that you said that you really regret. It paints Jonah in an ugly light, but it's actually here for a reason. Whether it's Jonah reflecting on his own life much later, after he'd come to his senses... Or whether it's someone else telling Jonah's story, we don't know, but we do know that it's not here by accident. It's here to make the people that Jonah represents, God's people, Israel, reflect on themselves and their own attitudes. And it's here to make us do the same thing. 
It's this scene that makes it completely clear that Jonah doesn't get God's grace. He doesn't understand it. And that's the question that this scene asks us too. Do you get God's grace? Do you understand the radical, undeserved nature of God's forgiveness? Because if we don't get it, if we don't get God's grace, if we think God's favour to us is something that we deserve rather than something God freely gives, then like Jonah, we won't care about other people being saved either. We won't share God's gracious and compassionate heart that delights in seeing people repent and rejoices when God shows mercy to sinners. It's Jonah's response to God's mercy in this final scene that shows us that he just doesn't get it. As we've spent time with Jonah over these last four weeks, we've seen over and over and over again what God is like. Uh, Jonah himself told us at the climax of his song in the belly of the fish, in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. God is a God of salvation. And this final chapter begins with Jonah repeating the Old Testament's great statement of God's character, that he is gracious and compassionate, he is slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love and he relents from disaster. Jonah knows what that is Uh, that that's what God is like. And so it comes as no surprise to Jonah that when Nineveh repents, God holds back the judgment that he said he would do and he shows them mercy. Because this whole mission that Jonah was sent on was actually about the sovereign God, the God who made the sea and the dry land, also being the God who is a saviour, whose great desire is that people are saved, that all nations are saved. God's heart isn't just for Israel, it's for all nations to be blessed. But Jonah isn't on the same page as God. I see how he responds in verse 1, look down at your Bibles if you've got them open. Verse 1 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Actually, I think that translation undersells it a bit. Uh, Literally, you could say, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah and he burned with anger. It's a very strong statement, isn't it? Uh, The word evil gets used a lot in this book. Uh, The author seems to play around with its meaning a little bit. Uh, The sailors in chapter 1 describe the storm as an evil that has come up against them. Uh, The Ninevites, they are an evil people who nevertheless repent from their evil. And when they did, it says God relented from the evil he said he would do to them. Now, God's mercy to Nineveh is evil to Jonah. He sees God's mercy as evil. And it fills him with so much rage that he wants to die. This is dangerous territory that he's in, isn't it? Calling God's mercy to someone evil. But before we jump in and you know, condemn Jonah, which it's right to do, we should condemn Jonah for this, we need to see, at least for a second, where he's coming from. See, we can't forget how evil and depraved the Ninevites were. 
Uh, we saw this picture from the British Museum a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when the Assyrian army swept through a country, they would leave a trail of destruction in their wake. Uh, this is evidence of their brutality. Uh, they would skin men alive and then behead and impale them, as you can see there on that relief. They would burn children alive. Uh, they would beat and rape and enslave the women. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, were a brutal, violent people. And so what God is asking Jonah to do is like asking Syrian families to welcome members of ISIS who have killed and tortured their family members into their churches. It's not an easy thing that God is asking Jonah to accept, is it? But to call God's mercy evil... That's treading dangerous water, isn't it? And we see Jonah pour out his rage to God. All the vileness and the poison that's in his heart comes flowing out in verse 2. And Jonah exposes himself. Uh, Up until this point in the story, we haven't been exactly clear on why Jonah ran away in chapter 1. Was he afraid for his life going to such a violent people? Uh, Was it that he thought he would fail? We haven't been told clearly so far, but here it becomes crystal clear. It's that Jonah doesn't think the Ninevites deserve God's mercy. But he knew that if he went and he preached, that God would show them mercy anyway. And so he ran in the opposite direction. And he protests to God by quoting God's own name back to him. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Uh, If that statement sounds familiar to you, uh, it should if you know your Bible well. When Jonah describes God using these characteristics, uh, gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, uh, there's barely a page of Scripture that doesn't drip with those characteristics, does it? Uh, But this phrase, this particular combination of those characteristics is something that we first hear in the Bible in Exodus 34, when God reveals His glory to Moses. In Exodus 34, Moses is speaking with God on Mount Sinai and he asks God, let me see your glory, God. And God says to him, Moses, you can't see my face or you'll die, but I will let you see my back. And he takes Moses and he puts him in the cleft of a rock and he passes by him and Moses sees God's glory as he passes by and he tells Moses his name and he says in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. 
You want to see my glory, Moses? Says God. Here it is. It's my character. This is what makes God glorious. The glory of God is that he is compassionate and loving and quick to forgive while still being a God of perfect justice. And Jonah, he conveniently leaves out the bit about God's justice, doesn't he? He doesn't mention that in his quote. Uh, I wonder if that's because he's okay with God punishing people uh, or maybe he thinks that if God can show mercy to Nineveh, then maybe God really isn't that concerned about justice at all. But Jonah's complaint here, where he uses God's character and God's name and God's glory against him, is just dripping with irony. And to see that, really, you need to know the context of Exodus 34 and this quote. In Exodus 31, a few chapters before, Moses is on Mount Sinai. Uh, He's receiving the law and the Ten Commandments from God. It's this great blessing to Israel as God's chosen and rescued people. But meanwhile, in Exodus 32, the rest of Israel is down at the base of the mountain, bowing down to a golden calf indulging in blatant idolatry against the God who has just rescued them from Egypt. And in response, God's anger burns against them. And he says to Moses, I want to destroy them. Then Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He steps in, he asks God to show mercy, and God does. Not because Israel deserves it, but because Moses has found favour in his sight. Moses intercedes for the people. He's the prototypical Christ in that way. And it's in that context that Yahweh, Israel's God, reveals his glory, his compassion and his steadfast love and his faithfulness. You see, the Israelites know that God is compassionate and merciful because he has showed compassion and mercy to them. Not because they deserve it, but because God's character is to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jonah knows it personally as well, doesn't he? He's experienced God's grace. He deliberately disobeyed God's command to go to Nineveh. He deserves death. He knows that as he asks the sailors to throw him overboard, but when he's sinking down to the depths of the ocean and he cries out to God, God shows him grace and he brings him from death to life. Jonah has a personal experience of God's grace and yet that grace is evil to Jonah when it's directed towards anyone he thinks doesn't deserve it. See, he thinks he deserves God's kindness because he's an Israelite. And so these words of Jonah to God are dripping with irony because they're from an incident in the Bible that shows with crystal clarity that Israel doesn't deserve God's kindness either. They are dependent on God's grace too. And these are wonderful things about God that Jonah's complaining about, aren't they? God's gracious, he is extraordinarily generous to the undeserving. He gives us the righteousness of his son and makes us part of his family. 
He's merciful and compassionate. He withholds withholds the punishment that we deserve and he takes it on himself in the person of his son, Jesus. He's slow to anger, even though we keep sinning again and again, turning our backs on him, thumbing our noses at him, he shows incredible, infinite patience with us. He's abounding in steadfast love. It it pours out of him like water over Niagara Falls. Once God has committed himself to us in Jesus, he will never give up on us. And he relents from disaster. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He's patient. He wants everyone to come to repentance. God told Moses that these were the character traits that were his glory as he passed by him and just let him see a glimpse of his back. But in Jesus, we've seen his face, haven't we? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God said, who let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we know much more than Moses and Israel and Jonah that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We see God's glory in its fullest, clearest form when we look at the face of the Lord Jesus. When we see what he's done for us on the cross, in his gracious and compassionate heart towards sinners like us. The Psalms say that God's steadfast love is better than life and he's shown us his steadfast love clearly in his Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jonah says he'd rather die than live in a world where God's like that. See what he says in verse 3? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And God ignores his request like you ignore a toddler having a tantrum. Jonah's not going to get what he wants. Instead, he asks him in verse 4, Do you do well to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Is anger the appropriate response to my mercy? What right do you have to be happy for me to bless you, but resentful when I show grace to someone you think doesn't deserve it? Who do you think you are, Jonah? Because obviously... Jonah doesn't understand that God's kindness isn't something you deserve, it's something freely given to the undeserving. Jonah thinks he deserves God's kindness and the Ninevites don't. And the question that this scene forces us to ask is whether we've understood grace properly or whether we're like Jonah and we think we're saved because we deserve it. Because if we think we've actually earned God's grace, then we won't be willing to share it with anyone we think hasn't earned it. If we think we deserve God's kindness, we'll never share it with those who we don't think 
deserve it. And in essence, what we're doing is taking on God's right to judge for ourselves. Jonah's problem is that he thinks you've got to be an Israelite to be shown God's kindness. And so the Gentiles are automatically out. The Assyrians, they're out. His self-righteousness overflows in racism and xenophobia. He's clearly forgotten, hasn't he, that Israel's role isn't to sit in judgment on the nations. God had saved them so that they could be a kingdom of priests, agents of his promise to bless the nations of the earth through his covenant with Abraham. Now, our prejudices may not be the same as Jonah's, but actually I think that sinful tendency lurks in all of our hearts. How often is there someone that, deep down, we don't think really deserves God's grace? Maybe you can think of a specific person. Or for others of us, maybe it's just a general attitude that kind of bubbles away under the surface. You know, maybe if you're like Jonah and you come from a people who have been oppressed, it's the people who oppressed you. If you've been badly sinned against and hurt and abused, maybe it's the person who hurt you. Generally, as Christians, I think we're tempted to sin and respond in anger and hatred to people who reject and hate us. Groups who violently kill and persecute Christians overseas or even those who publicly portray Christians and our ethics as evil and oppressive in our own culture. You know, that vocal atheist in your workplace who will ridicule and mock Christians every chance they get. At other times, I think we can just be petty, like Jonah's petty. It's just the people that we don't like very much. But the Bible gives us the antidote to that. The antidote to that sinful attitude is remembering We need to remember that God saved us, not because we deserve it. Actually, quite the opposite, isn't it? What we deserve is hell and judgment. We need to remember that he saved us because of what he is like, gracious and compassionate. We need to remember that we're saved from sin and death to be part of God's great commission to make disciples of all nations. We remember that by keeping our Bibles open, by meditating on God's grace, by interrupting the flow of our day to pause and read God's Word. We remember by regularly confessing our sins so that we never think that we've earned grace. We remember by going out of our way to speak about God's grace to other people. The critique of this book is that Jonah had forgotten And Jonah stands for all of Israel who had forgotten too. And so God prompts Jonah to remember with his question, do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer, he responds by giving God the silent treatment. And so in verses 5 to 11, God sets up a living parable for him, the parable of the plant. Uh, After God relents from destroying the city, Jonah storms out of Nineveh. 
to wait for the 40 days to pass. Uh, Maybe he's hoping that uh, God would uh, forget and destroy them or maybe the Ninevites would forget their repentance and go back to their evil and so God would rain down judgment from them, on them. Uh, he wants to see Nineveh destroyed and so he stomps out of the city. You can almost hear him muttering under his breath and you know, shaking his tiny fist at God as he goes. Uh, he builds a shelter to sit in and he waits and as he waits... God gives him another opportunity to understand and he shows him more grace. And this plant that grows up is an object lesson, a living parable to help Jonah see things from God's perspective. In verse 6, the plant grows up quickly. Uh, It gives Jonah some shade to sit under and it says Jonah is exceedingly happy about the plant. This is a chapter of extreme emotions for Jonah, isn't it? He's exceedingly angry about Nineveh, but exceedingly happy about the plant. But the next morning, the sun comes up and Jonah's plant is gone. God has sent a worm in the night to attack it and the plant withers. No more shade for Jonah. And on top of that, God sends a scorching east wind and he makes the sun beat down on Jonah so that he's faint. And he starts to grumble again and says to God that he would rather die than put up with this. But God is using it to make a point to Jonah. And he explains that in verse 10 and 11. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The comparison that God is making here is laying bare just how selfish and petulant Jonah is being. God and Jonah are both filled with pity and concern. Jonah pities the plant, but really only because of what it provides for him. Jonah really pities himself, doesn't he? God pities 120,000 Ninevites who provide nothing for him. He pities people who have rebelled against him. Jonah's concerned about his comfort, God is concerned about the salvation of a whole city full of people. Jonah's love is selfish, it's focused inward on himself. God's love is generous and focused outwards on others. And God finishes this parable of the plant with a question that really only has one answer, doesn't it? Shouldn't I pity the people of Nineveh more than you pity this plant? And the book finishes. There's no response from Jonah. uh, No great epiphany where he comes to his senses and says, oh yes, God, you're right, I I should. How selfish have I been? Let me go back to Nineveh and tell them about your great mercy. It's another strange part of this strange book. It finishes with God saying that he cares about cows. We're not told what happened to Jonah, Jonah or the Ninevites. And that's not, I think, because someone lost the last page of the story. 
I think it's a deliberate strategy that means that the end of this book is meant to be like a mirror. Of course God should be cared with the Ninevites, the 120,000 people who live in Nineveh. But are we? That's the question that the sudden ending wants us to ask. Are we concerned with those people? Or are we more like Jonah than we'd care to admit? Do we have the compassion that God has for the lost? If Jonah's shown us anything about ourselves, it's that the primary reason we don't go out of our way to evangelise and share the good news and throw a life preserver to people who are tired of treading water is that we don't share God's compassion. Because we don't love them enough. Because we don't share God's heart for the lost. It's not that we don't have enough training, that we don't have enough Bible knowledge or our apologetics aren't good enough or whatever it is. It's just that we don't really love people enough to go out of our way to share the words of eternal life with them. Because if we did, then no lack of training, no lack of knowledge, no feeling of awkwardness would actually stop us, would it? We've seen the full face of God's compassion and mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus. It's the compassion and the mercy of God that drives everything that he does to save us. God the Son volunteers to take on our flesh, to become human, to suffer in our place. God the Father volunteers for the grief of watching his Son suffer and die under his wrath. They are motivated by extraordinary compassion and love for the lost and undeserving sinners like us. As we look into Jesus' face through the Gospels, you get to see that compassion, that glory up close. Matthew 9, he has compassion on the crowds that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, Jesus has compassion on a large crowd. Matthew 15, he has compassion on the hungry people who followed him into the wilderness. Jesus' life is filled with compassion for people who are lost. And even now, as he sits at his his Father's right hand in heaven, he still looks with compassion on people. Our temptation is to judge and condemn people who aren't like us, the people we think of as sinners. His response is compassion. When he sees people tearing each other down in jealousy and rivalry, he feels compassion. When Jesus sees people lashing out at each other with violent words and violent actions, he has compassion. When he sees people lost and living as slaves to their passions in greed and drunkenness and sexual immorality, he has compassion. When he sees people living for themselves but not giving a second thought to the poor and the helpless, he has compassion. He doesn't despise them like we're tempted to do. 
He has compassion for people who don't know their right hand from their left and who are desperately in need of his mercy and his grace. The story of Jonah isn't about this rebellious prophet. It's not about the big fish or the people of Nineveh. It's not about a plant and a worm. It's a story about God. It's a story about God's gut-wrenching compassion for people who are lost. In Jonah, we see his compassion for Nineveh and its 120,000 people. In Jesus, we see his gut-wrenching compassion for the whole world. In his compassion, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. In Jesus, he tells us, go and make disciples of all nations. And the place for us to start is in this city, isn't it? With our neighbours, with our friends, with our colleagues and our family where there's 135,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. How about we pray and we ask God that we would share his compassionate heart for them. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Father, that's a wonderful truth and you are worthy of all praise and glory and honour because of who you are and what you are like. We're so thankful that we've seen the full face of your glory, your compassion and your mercy, your steadfast love in the Lord Jesus. Thanks that you showed your love for us by sending Jesus to die while we were still sinners, while we were still your enemies. And so, Father, help us to remember your grace. And by your Spirit, please mould our hearts to be more and more like yours, showing compassion for the lost. Keep us from pride and from self-righteousness and arrogance. Help us remember that apart from your grace, we are lost too. Father, we're sorry for the times that we've failed at this and thought more highly of ourselves than we should. We thank you for the assurance of your forgiveness. And we pray that you would show mercy to our city. Give us and give other believers opportunities to share our faith in the Lord Jesus with those people who are perishing around us. And please... In your grace and by your Holy Spirit, bring them into saving faith and into the fellowship that we share with you and with one another. And we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen.